And if what you have, you know, is good, you know, will change lives, you know, will create impact, you know, is transformative, then I don't know that it's smarmy to market it. I don't know that it's ambitious to try to put it out there and build a business from it. Frankly, I think it's your responsibility. You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. My guest this week on The Breakdown is Laura Gassner-Otting, a coach and speaker and the author of the 2019 book Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. Limitless is a guidebook of sorts for people who want to create what Laura calls consonance, harmony between what we do and who we are. Laura worked for 20 years as as an executive headhunter for nonprofit organizations, and in the course of interviewing hundreds of high-achieving and talented leaders, she discovered that many of them were chasing societies or somebody else's definition of success, but not their own. In Limitless, Laura argues that when our careers and our values are in alignment, when they mutually support one another, we're then able to achieve a success that actually makes us happy. Michael Bungay-Stanier, a previous guest on the podcast, recommended Laura and her book, and after I read it, I wanted to talk with her about it here. As I reflected, though, it occurred to me that what might be even more interesting than just talking about the book, and what would take more vulnerability on my part, would be to record my receiving a kind of consonance coaching session from Laura, and for me to then share that session with you. So that's what I'm doing today. It definitely felt vulnerable, but it also felt exhilarating, and it helped me be creative and see things in a new way. Laura asked tough, incisive questions, listened very intently, and offered on-point, no-nonsense, actionable feedback. I thought my career and my values were already in consonance, and in many ways they are, but after our conversation, I realized that there was still some more work to be done. I left the session full of thought. Over the next couple of days, I did some integrative thinking, borrowing a term from Roger Martin, and I realized that I didn't need to leave behind either the work with attorneys that I've been doing, in fact, I'm turning that into a really exciting collaboration, or the work on complexity that has been the focus of the last decade of my professional life. So what about you? Have you ever noticed a gap between what you do and who you are? My sense is that all of us do at some point. I hope that the questions that Laura asked me and the insight she offered in response to my answers will prompt you to consider ways to achieve more consonants in your own life. So without further ado, here is me receiving a coaching session from Laura Gassner-Otting. I'm excited to uh, talk with you today. You wrote a great book called Limitless. And rather than interview you about the book, which is all about how we can be in consonance with our work and, and lots of really great stuff, uh, I thought it would make more sense and be more interesting to have you sort of talk me through your process and your questions that you use to coach people to help them identify their kind of how, how they can be in consonance with their work and how they can how they can find meaning in it and, and all of these things. And we haven't really prepped this, so you don't know much about me um, other than you know what's out there uh, pu- publicly. Um, 
and we're going to kick it off and you're going to kind of be in the in the driver's seat. I did do a, like a survey instrument that hopefully was was helpful, um, but this is just where we're going to start. Awesome. Well, I'm really, I'm really excited to do this. And I'm, I'm honored that you are putting yourself very vulnerably in my hands. So uh, this is, um, this is, we'll see where we go. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm really excited about it. Um, so I actually didn't do any research on you. I didn't look at stuff on the internet. I intentionally tried very hard to not because I wanted you to be able to come fresh and tell me your story. And um, so I would love to hear a little bit about your story. I, I, I think, look, my book is based on this idea that we are all pursuing this idea of success. Success, 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 as defined by other people, as defined by the right job and the right spouse and the right house and somebody at some point telling you that, you know, you'd make a good lawyer, you'd make a good accountant, you'd make a good teacher. And then you're like, okay, I guess I'll pursue that. And for 20 years, I, um, I did executive search where I interviewed thousands of leaders, all of whom had success, which is why I was calling them, but none of whom were really happy, which is why they were taking my calls. <laughs> yeah. And so I like to start when I talk to people and hear a little bit about, you know, what is your definition of success? What is it that you're looking for? Yes. Um, I I don't know exactly. And, and I think part of why I don't know is because for years, I, I sort of had that same experience where um, I graduated from college, I started a job on Wall Street where uh, I made a lot of money uh, in a way that was not, that was sort of unexpected for, you know, a 23 year old. Um, and I worked that job for, I worked at that job for seven years and, and left right after my first son was born and also right after I had gotten diagnosed uh, with testicular cancer. And, you know, that was in, in 2011. Um, I had been thinking about doing my own thing for a while. And I knew that my, my path wasn't in finance. It wasn't going to end on Wall Street. And in, in 2010, the Deepwater Horizon oil rig blew up. And I had this thought at the time that, you know, that the greatest environmentalist of the last 50 years could have been the, the, the petroleum engineer who, who stopped that, who, who figured out um, that there was a risk there and, and who spoke up or who created, really created the culture uh, that would al allow people to speak up. And so I sort of had this vague notion that I wanted to work in this space. I wanted to help people, um, kind of manage the risk that came from uh, the complexity of the world. And I, I didn't really know what that meant, but I kind of left my job and hung out a shingle and, you know, started trying to do that work as a first as a consultant. And then eventually later writing uh, a book about it, writing Meltdown about it with my um, colleague, Andrash. So um so, so I think there's a way in which, you know, kind of quite, quite authentically, I can say that, like, I, I had what seemed like success uh, from, from a financial perspective. I liked the people I worked with, but it wasn't what I was looking for. And in many ways, my journey over the last 
gosh, I guess about seven or eight years has been trying to figure out what, um, how to have an impact in the world. I, I don't know if I would have put it in that way before, but um, yeah, you know, how to have an impact, how to work with people to help them make the world uh, better, and also how to run a sustainable, you know, a financially sustainable business that kind of um, supports a financially sustainable life for myself and my my kiddos and my family. And so I think in many ways, you know, what I've done over the last year or so is really start to think about, start to specialize. And I think that's where I was sharing with you right before we we got on that. I think I have some anxiety around that, around really choosing a niche, even though I'm doing it because I'm worried that I'm going to give up, give up other needs, other ways of being seen in the world. And so um, that's, that's where I'm at right now. So it's interesting that, that you talk about the evolution, because it sounds like the evolution started, it started earlier, right? It started with maybe not feeling entirely comfortable with the way that you were making money. And the birth of your son and the diagnosis was not the revelation moment, but it was sort of the push that yes. you needed. Yeah. That's, I think that's, that's right. And it wasn't so much that like, I don't have a moral judgment about that way of making money. Um, in fact, I've had to do healing around, it's okay to make money in a different way. Um, but I, I think what it was is I just, it, it you know, I, I think I was a little bit, the place where I was at, the place where I worked, which was a lovely place in some ways, was was also a place where it didn't nurture me. It didn't nurture my my soul. And so I think there was an aspect of it or an element of it where being able to make a shift away from that is is positive or was positive. I think that we're often told that success is the most money you can make, right? The highest office, the best view, the, you know, the most impressive uh, title from the most prestigious brand company. When the reality is that the success really has to be what the money means for you. So, you know, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I was in high school and college and I talked to college counselors and, and, and job counselors, they would give me a list and the list would be, you know, what are the things that make a good job good? And the list was things like, uh, who's the leader? What's the mission? How many, like, what are the skills you're going to learn? What's the impact you're going to make? How, um, uh, how will it look on your resume? And of course, obviously things like, you know, benefits and money and all of that. But there was never a, a, a lens put on it that said, okay, but what would make this job a good job for you, right? So like in, in, the, in the 20 years of interviewing people, money was very rarely the top of the list for people. Yeah, there had to be enough money, right? Like there's two, right. there's two numbers. There's the, there's the want to make num number and the need to make number. And like, we all have to make the need to make number, right? Like you got to pay your rent, you got to pay your mortgage, you got to put food on the table, you got to like take care of your family. But between the need to make number and the want to make number is a lot of distance. And at different ages and different stages of life, that number will fluctuate. And what we're willing to do for that number will fluctuate, right? So like when you were younger, you may have been okay 
working 24 seven wall street job, the whole thing. And then you have a child and you want to spend time with the child and you want to leave a better world for the child. And suddenly you're like, Hmm, maybe the number, maybe, maybe my, the money on the priority list is kind of dropping down a little bit. So were there moments where you said actually, like, was it, was it a conscious thing where you said the money is less important? Not necessarily the how you make the money, because I'm a firm believer. And, you know, remember, I spent 20 years doing search for nonprofit mission driven organizations. So I feel like I'm an unimpeachable source on the statement I'm about to make, which is that there are all kinds of ways to have calling and purpose in the world. But making money, look, if your ability to make lots and lots and lots and lots of money is something that you have, and you can take that lots and lots and lots of money and donate to like a cancer research organization, are you any more or less noble than the actual cancer research scientists? Like, I believe that it's okay to make lots of money. Like, that's fine. If that's your purpose, if that's your calling. So I'm interested if there were moments where the money just kind of felt empty or was it, you know, as you got the diagnosis, as you had the kid that you were like, mm, other things became like, more important. Like the, I guess the question I'm asking is, did the money become less important or did the other things push it down because they became more important? I think the, I, I think there's, there's uh, two answers to that. I think one is the money, other things pushed the money down. Other things became more important in particular, you know, ha- having an, a, a, you know, an infant, um, that moment of realizing like, gosh, if I work, you know, I didn't work crazy hours, but even if I work eight to six, then, you know, there is, there is, if for, for the first little while, there is, it's very hard to be involved in an infant's life if you're gone from eight to six every day, right? And so that wasn't, that wasn't something that I was interested in, because um, I was interested in being involved. I was interested in, in that. Um, the, um, I think that's one answer. I think the other answer is for years, I just sort of, I took the ostrich approach to money and I just kind of buried my head in the sand, Um, which is to say that after leaving my Wall Street job, I had sort of enough money saved for enough of a period of time. Not that I didn't have to worry about it, but really my mental model of starting off on my own was I was going to go from making, you know, oodles of money to, and when I say oodles of money, I'm like, that's calibrated to my like middle-class upbringing. Like I'm not talking about like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that, you know, a hedge fund magnate might, might make, but it was enough for me for my lifestyle. But anyway, my mental model was going from like being very financially successful, particularly as a, you know, 20 something, 30 year old, to um, imagining that I was going to make zero money for 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 the foreseeable future, and and so there's a way in which, almost like I made the decision, sort of like, and as I made it, I tried to ignore the fact that money was a factor at all, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that um, I think there's a lot of ways to get value and to get money, and I think once you're in the like. I, I, I know what I need and I have enough to get me through this next period of exploration, right? Then it's, then it's sort of figuring it out. I'm, when I, when I sold my last company, I had, I had five years 
payment. I basically sold the team for a dollar plus me for the following five years. So I had five years out. And I, um, <clears throat> I, the way I thought about it was like spend a year and a half kind of figuring out what it is you want to do, spend another year and a half figuring out how to do it and spend the next couple of years figuring out how to make a profit at it, right? So it's like, that was kind of the runway. And 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 I'll be damned, I got right to that point, right as COVID hit. So, you know, but there's something, there's something freeing about knowing that the money doesn't have to be the thing that drives you because you have enough, at least to sort of figure it out, you know, in, in, yeah. in the short term. And so I'm, you know, I, I, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurship uh, conferences and and there's always somebody in the back of the room who's like how long did it take you to write your business plan you know when you started your last business and my answer is always like I, I didn't I didn't have a business plan I, I I just had business and I just went and it was sort of like well what's gonna happen I, I don't I don't really know and I always ask them back I'm like well what you're an entrepreneur what would you if you fail and you know they always have an answer right like, well, I'm a yeah. sister, I'll go get a job in a cubicle till I figure out what the next thing is. And it's like, okay, great. So you have your plan if things fail. What are you going to do if you succeed? And I think that's the thing that people don't spend enough time thinking about is what are you going to do if you succeed? So, you know, you didn't have the anxiety because you knew, like, you had the failure safety net. Like, you knew what the plan was going to be. You knew how much you had. You knew how to, like, where you could go and how far you could explore. I'm wondering if some of the anxiety that you feel isn't attached to this conversation, but it's attached to the like, what could success look like, right? And where am I gonna go? And 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 if I do wanna do these things that have impact, what, how do I define impact? Because the the idea of defining success by a number, how much did you make, right? You, did you kill? How, 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 how big were you swinging? That's really clear, but impact is a little squishier. So how clear are you on like what success looks like now in the life that you're trying to create? Well, and I, I think that's such a good question because if you if you go back to where I sort of started this arc and I talked about, um, you know, BP and the and the petroleum engineer being the the greatest environmentalist of the last fifty years is sort of how I remember framing it at the time. Um, you know, there is a clear. I, I don't know if calling is the right word there, but there is something there. There's a clear calling. And and in fact, I had this realization over the summer as I was actually working with a team from a big oil company and working with a team that is thinking about these kinds of issues. It's like, wow, like I'm actually in the room doing the work that I thought I was going to do, you know, 10, 10 years ago. And that was a really exciting moment. Um, but what I have also realized is that from a business development perspective, um, my first, let's say, five, seven years of kind of doing this consulting work was not focused enough. Um, and there's a way in which, you know, there's a way in which I wrote a book about complexity and then kind of ironically tried to connect with people that that think about complexity but didn't like complexity is the unifying principle for almost no one like there are 
you know, there's like, like everybody deals with it, but as a way to segment a market, it's actually a terrible principle because you're, you, you get it. Like, I get like it. You, you can't go, I mean, you know, you can't, there, there's not like, there's the academic study of complexity, but then from a practitioner perspective, like no industry self or like there, there's not that driver. Now there are people who are passionate about thinking in terms of complexity in their particular domain, but you know, it's sort of like, it's not a good market segmentation tool is, sure. is I guess, I guess what I would say. Yes. Um, yes. And so even, even as I've gotten to do more of work that's centered around complexity, I've realized how poor a driver of business that is. Um, and so what I have, and, and here's where we get to kind of the, the sort of squishiness of, of impact. You know, I'm at the same time as, as what, what you were saying resonated with me earlier, like, like I realize that there's not a clear answer to this. So like my process is to like, it's particularly in the last year where I think we all had to admit that we in fact are not in control of very much in our lives. Um, I have really started kind of embodying the approach of like, try something, see what works, double down on what works, stop doing what doesn't work. And, um, you know, try to develop more of a kind of commercial business instinct too. Like trying to to sort of step back and see like, oh, you know, like this collaboration isn't going to go anywhere. This person's never going to hire me because just from an interpersonal perspective, they're going to have a lot of trouble taking the risk that's required to to hire me to do this work that we're talking about. And, and just learning that. And that's been really good. Um, uh, so, Anyway, the thing that I have, this is, I'm, this is a long-winded way of getting to this, um, getting to this point, which is in the last year, I've managed to do quite a bit of work with attorneys, which has been really, really interesting. I actually love attorneys. I think that they have really fat, like, I love them in the same way I love engineers, in which I think there's something about getting so steeped in a discipline and getting so steeped in a way of thinking about the world that you know, you embody it in, in so much of what you do. And so my work with attorneys has been both doing innovate, like helping them with innovation work. So I got to do a project with uh, Microsoft over the summer, which was a really interesting collaboration around how do you take, you know, how do you, how do you create a culture of innovation among a, a group of people in attorneys that have traditionally done things very artisanally? Uh, even at a big technology company like Microsoft. Um, and I've also started doing one-on-one -on -one work with attorneys that run their own practices. And, and um, you know, for my business, that's the direction that I'm going to focus on. And I think I have anxiety around like, but will this really have the impact that I want? Like, will this really, like, will... And I can tell myself stories of the impact, but I think at the end of the day, I feel like, gosh, I have this one persona that's like a public intellectual that wants to write books and that, you know, does stuff like this. The podcast writes a bunch and I love that. But there's a way in which, as you know, 
the ability for that to pay the bills is is you know pretty um can be pretty marginal you know you can you can be in the right place at the right time and do a bunch of speaking around it and i've gotten to do some of that you know but it's not necessarily a business i mean you've got to you've got to have some way of converting that into a business whether it's working with people and 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 you know you've got to you've got to have that that kind of pathway and some people like uh, you know, Michael Bunge Stanier, who you and I, um, he, he's the one who introduced us. I mean, you look at his, his path and I mean, he's really created, I mean, his, his books feed into his business, his business feeds into his books. I mean, he's got the, he's got the marketing flywheel running in a, in a brilliant way, in a way that really, I think, connects with a job to be done that a lot of, businesses have around how do you train managers to be better and 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 his approach is through coaching and curiosity which I think is fabulous and and really resonates with me um and I, I guess that's a long way of saying like I'm worried that I can create a financially successful business but I'm worried that I will lose that um that other side of myself that I will I will lose the ability to have an impact by writing, you know, the next book about change or um, whatever it is that that turns out to pique my interest. So, I think that's where some of my anxiety sits, and that's where some of my my challenge kind of comes from. I wonder if your problem isn't a content or direction or strategy problem, but a marketing problem. So. For example, my book, Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life is a bright yellow book with a beautiful um, a beautiful uh, infinity sign on it, and it calls to you from the other side of the bookstore. I've literally gotten gigs from, speaking gigs from people who have said, I saw your book on the other side of the bookstore, and I couldn't not go check it out, and then I read it and you know posted about it, and we had to bring you in. That book was originally going to be called Consonance, Doing Work That Matters. And it was going to be a bright orange book with a la Harvard Business Review with, you know, four paper airplanes going in one direction and a fifth coming in another direction. And approximately three people would have bought that book and two of them would have been used copies. So although I guess that math doesn't work out. It's my well, I, it's thought. funny. I made it work in my head. It was like promotional copy. That would have been a marketing problem. Yeah. <laughs> promotional copies, advanced reader copies. But, but, but what I'm saying is that had I not gotten on the phone with my dear friend, Clay A. Bear and said, so um, this is what the book's going to be called. And he said, uh, no. <laughs> Nobody will buy a book with a word on it they don't know. Like nobody's going to buy a book with a word on it called complexity because they're scared of the idea. That's right. the problem. They want to buy a book with a solution in it, right? Yes. The solution is limitless. Ignoring everybody, carving your own path and living your best life, right? Not consonant. You know, Mel, Mel Robbins wrote a book called The Five Second Rule. You understand what that means. Marie Kondo, Spark Joy. You know what that means, right? Like, uh, Rachel Hollis, Girl Stop Apologizing, Jesse Itzler, Living Like a Seal. I mean, it, you, you know, Kara Golden, Undaunted. Like, you know what the... But people aren't going to buy a book that's like, change. It's, it, I, just, I just wonder if the problem isn't 
the thing you want to write about because what you're writing about is like here's how we understand the story here's how we understand uh you know the um the the, the solution but you want to package in the solution like soft people calls great book loon shots how great teams kill good ideas or how great ideas, whatever it's called um he could have written a book that was like structure and why structure fails organizations, right? Like nobody would have bought that book, but Loon Shots, it's sexy, it's exciting, right? It's totally. everybody wants good teams and great ideas. And so I just wonder if you took the book and you 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 packaged it in a way that you were presenting the solution rather than the problem, I wonder if it might solve the whole thing. Yeah, well, and, and I think that I, I think that you're right. And I think that I, I think that it's something that well, here's the other thing that I'll that I'll add to that, which is um in retrospect, I'm very proud of the work that we did on the book. And you know, and it's done like it's done reasonably well and it's put us in touch with people who care about these things. But I, I think in retrospect, one bit of learning I have is that the you kind of don't want to you you don't want to have to explain the problem in in the book you want people to already know what the problem is and right and and i think that that kind of like ties in with what you're with what you're saying and and i think that you know the problem is that the world is a crazy kind of like messed up place. And and a big part of why it's a crazy messed up place is because of complexity. It's because we have all of these interconnections that that we don't understand. But again, I think starting with the, you know, as soon as you inject complexity into it, it's like, well, now you've got to have a really sophisticated audience that that kind of understands things and is and is reflective and I think what I hear you saying is that like, that's a pretty high barrier. And and I agree with that. Um, and I think, so some of the question is like, what, so what do I do now about it? Right. I mean, it depends on what you want. Like it may be that you say like what, you know, what, what Michael does is he puts out Michael Bungestainer, you mentioned earlier, what he does is he puts out unbelievable amounts of content. I mean, the man is a content machine. He is prolific. He puts out so yes. much content for free. And it's sort of like, you can get all the free content you want, but if you want one-on-one -on -one with Michael, right? Consulting, you want him to come speak, you want him to be part of your training, then that costs a lot of money, right? So, you know, I think there's, I, I think it's really a business model question. It's, it's you know, I, I spent a lot of time uh, over the Thanksgiving week thinking hard about this because I, I am endlessly curious about everything in the world. I mean, I've never met a revolution I didn't like. I'm so turned on by the big idea. It is just like, it's just, I love an adventure. Like I will jump out of the plane and then see if I have an, a parachute. Like I'm just, I'm the party of yes. And it, that's that's my kids, I'm, I'm the party of yes. And and yet that's not a good marketing strategy, right? Like that, that's not, cause nobody knows what to, they're gonna get from you. So I spent time thinking about what are the things that I talk about? I went to, um, uh, I forgot his name, it's Simon something, it's a genius model. And basically he has this thing where he has these three overlapping circles and a bit of a Venn diagram. And what are the three things that you talk about the most? And then how do they overlap? And then what is then that your body of work? So for me, it comes down to the topics that I talk about. I talk about um, stepping into your power. 
I talk about owning your potential. I talk about um, striving, you know, sustaining your success. And I talk about living your legacy. That's sort of things that I talk about. And to keep myself honest, I actually went back and I looked at my last year of blog posts. And it turns out that not all of them, but like 90% of the stuff that I wrote about into the things. And then they sort of sort of overlap into, you know, the whole like, you know, be all in type of idea. So what I did is I took um, a, a spreadsheet and I basically made a content calendar. Where I'm like, okay, what if I plan out the first six months of the year and I took one of these topics each week for each month and then what would be the new thing that I'd write about? What would be the repurposed content? You know, what's the call to action, et cetera. With this idea of if I just, I don't need to um, pursue the thing that's marketable. I just need to figure out how to market the stuff I wanna pursue. So yeah. if you said like, these are the things I care about. I care about complexity. I care about change. I care about impact, you know, James Clear has hundreds of thousands of followers and, and, you know, sold a million books and, you know, he writes about habits, but within habits, he writes about productivity. He writes about fitness and he writes about like mental health or I forgot what the, but everything you get from him is on one of those things, those three things. And it's all in this idea of habits. So he's the habits guy. So right. if you took or if you took the things that you and you created something where people knew what to get from you and you market into that niche. You don't need 8 billion people in the world to love you. You just need the right, you know, 8,000 to love you. And if you've got those, then where does that go to? So I, I just, again, I, I, where I'm coming down to this is I feel like you've spent the first half of your life sort of pursuing this external idea of, you know, the money goal as, as, as the idea of success. And then you had this moment Right, the birth, the diagnosed, et cetera, where and 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 you know the oil um, rig where you were like, oh, it's actually that that really is what feels consonant for me. Where I feel like the very best of me is sort of you know bringing um, is is being brought out by this work I do. So I would argue that if you narrowed it down to what are you will find other people who love those things but just have to like if if i'm going to follow you because i know that i'm going to learn about complexity i want to learn about complexity from you in with that so i just wonder if maybe this is more of a more of a marketing problem than anything else because it sounds like you know i mean you took you took my limitless assessment online my guess is that you were fairly incontinent because you've made a lot of very specific decisions to move in that direction. I mean, I'm sort of curious if there were any places where you weren't, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think, you know, where you want to go. It's just a question of how do you monetize it? Like if I, if you said to me, if I said to you, you could do everything you're doing right now and you'd make plenty of money, you probably wouldn't want to change much. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So I think it's really like a business strategy marketing question more than anything else. Yeah, and I I I don't disagree with that. Um, I do find myself, I don't know if wondering is the right word or sort of thinking, you know, like I, we talked a little bit about working with attorneys and, and I actually, like, there's actually a lot that I love about working with attorneys. I, I think that there is in fact a story I can tell myself about the impact that that work has. And, and part of it comes from, 
you know, like the legal system is like a, a piece of infrastructure that just sits at the center of everything. And when you think about, when I think about, you know, challenges with it, there's sure there's the challenge of, you know, a company that, that, you know, a big company that, that needs to deliver legal services or buy legal services. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a really interesting challenge. And it's an interesting challenge from a systems perspective. And it's an interesting, like, I like it because it's a big socio-technical problem. It's like, you can't, it's not just a technology solution. You can't just, you know, start using a new piece of technology to, 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 to do legal work. It's like, you've got to get people to actually use it. So there's change and adoption and all these really interesting aspects to it. Um, and I, I frankly really like working with one-on-one with attorneys who, who run their own practices or are partners at firms or, or are, you know, in-house at a, in a corporate legal department, because I think that they're, I think that they, you know, it's funny that we're talking about the idea of, of definition of success, but I think attorneys have a, you know, a very, um, often maladaptive mental model of success, right. That, that sort of, prioritizes prestige over lots of other things that um, may or may not be like lots of other things like lifestyle and even finances and, and things like that. And I don't, I don't, that sounds judgmental and I don't mean to judge that. But what I do think is that, um, you know, I think about personal growth in the sense of like, personal growth is being able to make an active choice. It's being able to, to kind of see you have an expanded set of options. And I think that the training that a lot of attorneys get, and then you, you add the kind of the sort of um, the, the training that they get in law school, and then the training that they get, you know, going to a big firm, like there is something about that, that often really pushes a prestige agenda on them that I think is often beneficial to, to be a little bit more choiceful about, to see, you know, to be able to say, well, I actually am not interested in maximizing my prestige in this context. I'm interested in doing more interesting work or, or whatever it is. And so being able to be part of that journey for people and, and help them feels really, feels really good. Um, and I, I think it's almost like, it's almost like this, Laura, I almost feel like I need to run two businesses at the same time. I need to run this business that's like consulting focused on this niche and working coaching with attorneys, which I, I really love that work and I really, really like it. And then on the other side, there's there's part of me that tells a story that like, I want to run that business and I want to run the business of being, you know, somebody who as you were saying, gives out, gives out a bunch of content around complexity and impact and, and helps people navigate change. But I guess the story I'm telling myself is that, um, the story I'm telling myself is that being able to have an impact, what, what is the story? The story I'm telling myself, or actually here, here's, it's not the story exactly. It's, it's, you know, my lived experience over the last couple of years since starting this, this whole enterprise after I left my Wall Street job is like that the further away from um, 
being able to clearly articulate to somebody what I do, the harder it is for me to find and invite my tribe to be part of the conversation that that I'm having. If oh, that well, that's sense. fascinating. So there is an attachment to there is an attachment to the prestige of what you used to do. Um, you're telling yourself that it's an ease of description, but my guess is that you could figure out how to describe what you do fairly easily. It's it's interesting, and maybe I'm this is completely off base, but it's interesting that the that the work with the lawyers who also have an attachment to prestige is work that you enjoy doing. Yeah. I'm wondering if um, uh, my friend Clay Bear, who I mentioned earlier, who helped me name Limitless, mostly because he was going to hit me with a two by four if I named it consonants. <laughs> um, he he has this thing called the perfect intro. I don't know if you know him or his perfect intro, but he he. He, 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 when he goes to speak, he, he, he goes, okay, how many of you love your elevator pitch? And of course, like no one raises their hand and they're like, how many of you love getting pitched to? And no one raises their hand. And he's like, what if you could love it? Like, what if you could actually love doing it? And he asks people to do a perfect intro, which is to do in six words or less what you do. And not to say, I am a blank. I am a dentist. I am a lawyer. I am an accountant, but to say what you actually do. So I insert verb here insert noun here, insert verb. Right. So for me, I could say, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I'm an executive coach. But what I tell people when they ask me what I do is I say, I help leaders get unstuck. Mm -hmm. And they go, oh, that's interesting. What does that mean? How do you do that? And I say, well, I spend my time, you know, I, I write books, I get asked to speak because of it. When I get off stage, people ask me to do coaching. So most of my work tends to be in the author, speaker, executive coaching space. But all of what I write is to help people understand the definition of success, what they've been married to for so long, which isn't working for them. So they could figure out what does and they can go and, you know, dedicate themselves fully to that instead. People are like, oh, tell me more, right? And suddenly we're in this interesting conversation. So if I were to ask you what you do and you are searching around for a, what I am, there's a reason why you're not able to answer that question. So if I were to ask you, what do you do? How would you answer that? Yeah. So I'll tell you, I, I'm, and it's, it's, um, I don't know Clay's work, but, um, I've done work like this over the years and, I have, feel like I finally settled on something that I feel sort of happy about, which has been pretty recent, which is, I, I would say that I help, I don't know what the right noun is. I help leaders, I help innovators uh, invite change into their organizations or into their lives. Maybe it's just invite change. I like that. Um... But I think there's more. I mean, I think that I think that you help them become enthusiastic about it. Yes, I rev I help them see that there's a whole other dimension to what they're trying to do. That that it's not about being right. It's about being curious about other people's experiences. And so, if we were to take it a step further, and I would I would say to you. So that what would that make it feel better for you if there was impact included in the statement? 
Like, is it that it just feels squishy? Um, is it that the statement feels squishy? Yeah, as somebody who is used to saying like, I am successful because I made X numbers of dollars this year. This is a, like consulting is sort of a squid, the, the life of the mind, the writing, it's, it, it's a little squishier. Yes, and there's, I mean, that's actually a big part of why I left Wall Street because I, I, I find that the human dynamics to be so important and, and the, so is there a because, I mean, like, yeah, I, I don't know what the, I don't know what the, I don't even, I don't know what the verb is. I help leaders invite change, you know, so that they can like, so that they can make groundbreaking shifts in their, in, in, in their work and the work that they do and the work that their organizations do. Um, you know, I think that, that when I, when I get down to it, that's a part of it. And I think that I do that in different ways. Like you were talking about, I do it with consulting. I do it, you know, one-on-one -on -one with people. Um, yeah. I mean, I think you have to remember that the portfolio lifestyle that you have is one to which so many entrepreneurs aspire. And yet, because we can't say, I crushed a, you know, $5 million in sales this year, it just feels harder to justify that it's real. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, you know, again, I mean, it's like, it's like a, it's a nomenclature thing. I used to, um, when I was in executive search, people used to ask me what I would do. And I would say, I'm a headhunter or I do executive search. And they would give me that like recoil with horror look because no one's <laughs> ever had a, no one's ever had a good experience with a headhunter. They're mostly crap, which is why I started my own firm because I wanted to treat, you know, candidates better. And one day, instead of saying I do executive search, I said, I run an executive search firm. And the person talking to me looked at me completely differently. And I looked at them completely differently. It was like, I like stood a little taller and it was like, you know what? I, I run a firm with 30 staff. We do, you know, hundreds of searches a year. We're all over the globe. We work for, you know, organizations that sow the civic infrastructure of our country. Like I didn't say all those things, but in saying I run an executive search firm, I suddenly, it was a totally different thing. Like, what do I do in that job of running an executive search firm? I do executive search, but it was a different thing that I was saying. And so I think, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves tend to be uh, what we think are, you know, what we think to then become reality. So, you know, you're telling this portfolio lifestyle of like, well, I don't really know. I am doing all these different things. It's hard to explain what it is. And meanwhile, the person you're talking to is like, God, I wish I could do all those different things. I have yeah. to do this one thing all day long. And so um, to be able to say, I, I work with leaders so that their organizations can create breakthroughs to have the impact that they've always wanted. That's exciting, right? That's like, that's a big deal. And that's not just like, well, I write about some things and I think about some things and I, you know, do this podcast and right. I mean, it's like, a, it is, it is a very specific thing. A, a friend of mine once said, you know, your title should be chief catalyzing officer. Like that's what you do. You catalyze people. Like that's your job. Like you get people unstuck. You help them to get to a place they've never been able to get to and their lives are better because of it. And I was like, oh, well, that's different than like I wrote a self-help book. <laughs> right. But those are the stories we tell ourselves.
So that's the question, right? I mean, this is, it's not just a marketing question for like, how do you turn the thing you love into something that um, is creating the kind of income that A, feels good and sustainable, but B, feels good and something you're proud of, but also maybe it's a marketing problem internally also. Yeah. I, I think that that's right. And I, I think that, um, you know, a part of the way I think about my work and think about what I do is around change, around, you know, the idea that aspects of, I mean, that the world is changing so fast and the ability for leaders to learn and adapt is a huge, hugely important thing. And frankly, many, many leaders are are not good at it for really good reasons. They're they're not good at it because they have spent their careers being rewarded for producing the right answer themselves. And and I think the world we live in now is one where um, there aren't so many right answers. There's much more, you know, things you can try and experiments you can run. And I think that the you know that to me is a really interesting problem. How do you how do you navigate the kind of this this sort of changing world? How do you figure out how to adapt to it when the first step is to say, actually, I don't know the answer? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, your time is now, man. I mean, never has it been clearer that none of us know anything, that none of us have any control, and that life is way more complex than we have ever thought it could be. So, yeah. you know, you have studied these topics. You've talked to people who manage these topics all day long. You you are an expert in you are an expert in not just the topics, but you're an expert in the experts about this topic. That's pretty exciting. It's yeah, it's it's true and it is very exciting. And have you ever done um have you ever done a survey from or, or, you know, done any kind of feedback forms from your clients? No. I wonder if that would be an interesting thing to do. Like come up with a very specific set of anywhere between five and 10 questions. Uh-huh. What did they think they wanted when they reached out to you? Did they get that? What else did they get? What was what was an insight that they learned from you that has fundamentally shifted the way that they think about things? I just wonder if it's. I wonder if maybe you. I wonder if maybe you need to 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 read. Because here's the thing, I think all of us do things that feel super intuitive, and we take them for granted. Like there are things that I do that people think are magical. And I'm like, I don't understand. It's like breathing. And then there are things that they do that are magical. And I'm like, I don't like, I cannot build an Excel spreadsheet to save my life. My husband does it for a living. Every once in a while, I'm like, what percentage of this number is that number? And how do you do this? And he does something in Excel. And it's like, he might as well have levitated me off the ground. I'm like, how did you, how did you, what, what, what kind of witchcraft is that with those numbers? Like what's going on? And meanwhile, like uh, every single wedding we've ever been to, I'm like, they're going to stay married. They're going to get divorced. I'm like, have a 100% hit rate. Like I just, I know people, he knows numbers. Yeah. And, and, and for me, it's like, it's like breathing for him. That's like breathing. And I think sometimes we forget that the things that we do that feel super intuitive 
are magical to other people. And even when they compliment us on it, we sometimes feel like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just blowing smoke up my ass. They're just making me try to feel good when really it's magical. And I just wonder if it's worth doing a little bit of like market research, if you will, about what has worked and what hasn't, because maybe you're telling yourself stories about what's valuable in your work that frankly, Chris isn't. And maybe you're not telling yourself enough stories about the stuff that is valuable. Yeah, that's interesting. And and I think, you know, there, I have done some of that. I have done, I have done stuff um, that's focused on kind of me rather than the services. And I think that has been helpful. And that has been helpful in sort of, you know, seeing like, what are the things I do? Well, I, I connect with people, I create structures, I create opportunities for people to do creative work. Um, and I think the question is sort of, you know, back to your point about the marketing question, it's like, what, what domain do I apply that to? And I agree, actually, I was literally thinking today, like, gosh, like there is, there is a way in which the kind of framework that we write about in Meltdown and the solutions that we write about, there is a way in which, even though the book came out in 2018, it really is a kind of a guide to what has happened in the last nine months, in the last year. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't do this because, you know, the <clears throat> physicians are their own worst patients. Um, but I tell people all the time and tell my, my, my coaching clients all the time that they should keep like a happy folder on their computer. And anytime anybody sends them like a great comment, a great email, um, a great review, like screenshot that, put it in the happy folder because it really is a great way. And this isn't just a like, it'll make you feel good about yourself. Chris, yay, you've clearly got, you know, a lack of self-esteem. This is more like, it keeps you grounded and reminds you about what the value is you are actually providing. Yeah. Because again, if you go back to the, like, what are the things you want to hammer? Like if it's a marketing problem and there's three to four things that these are the things you talk about all the time, you don't talk about anything else. These are the things you talk about. Like for me, it is leaning. It, it is, it is, it is finding, you know, leaning into your potential. It is, it is, you know, getting everything you want. It is sustaining your success. And that's all within this, like being all in, I'm going to start shifting towards living your legacy. But throughout those things, there's a mix of vulnerability. There's a little bit of moxie fueled, you know, um, you know, being a big nerd. Um, there's stuff about my kids and there's stuff about fitness and there's stuff about, you know, talent and people like the things that I know. So I made a list and I said, what are the topics I talk about? What are the mediums through which I get that information out, right? So my blog, my courses, my book, you know, media appearances, the stage, et cetera, um, Facebook lives, LinkedIn lives, my podcast, like what are the things? And then what are my areas of expertise? So if I'm like, well, I need to write something about stepping into your potential and I don't know what to write about. Well, um, I can do something that's a blog post and I can write about uh, my rowing. Okay let me write about something. So it just, it, it, it has kept me on track. And what I've seen is the number of people who have subscribed, the number of people who respond, the number of people who retweet, all of those things has gone up so much because I think 
I, I, instead of having lots of fans, I ended up with a smaller number of champions and those people are the ones that are carrying my message out farther. And when I see then what resonates, like if I'm doing a Facebook live and I'm asking people to respond and to like upvote and to love it or like it or whatever, I have an immediate focus group on what's working. When I have in my newsletter, four different like click to tweets and only two of them get tweeted. I'm like, okay, I guess those work. The other two didn't. Right. So I just think, I think that there's a, a thing that people like you and I end up falling prey to, which is we end up getting trapped in our own head and our own ideas and our own mind. And we're, we're not entirely sure like what the world's going to think. And I think there, there are so many lessons, as you say, from, from meltdown that have applied to the next nine months, but will also apply to the following nine months. Yes. So I, I think I think that this, it, you know, there there is no better time now. And if the answer to the question honestly is, if I could make the money I want to make doing exactly what I'm doing right now, then it's not a matter of changing what you're doing. It's just a matter of figuring out how to get paid for it. Yeah. And honestly, there are a lot of people out there that are getting paid for a lot crappier stuff than what you're putting out there. So <laughs> I think you can do this. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. And that and that that is that is the paradox too that there is a uh a there is not so much a relationship between the quality of stuff at the at the limit and and the success of it. No, there isn't and it's definitely not look, I mean it's not merit based at all. Um when my book uh when my book came out, Robin Roberts fell in love with it and tweeted and put on LinkedIn and Instagram, you know, pictures of the book and lines from it and told her senior producer to book me on Good Morning America. And that was huge. That was incredible. It was like a sea change moment. And I picked up my then 14 year old at school and he got in the car and he follows me on Instagram, which I would like to say is like my crowning achievement as my, as a parent is that my kid actually follows me on social media. Um, And he said, uh, it's kind of a big deal, right? And I said, uh, yeah, it's kind of a huge deal. And he said, I mean, you do know people wrote better books than you, right? (laughs) Thank you. 14 year old always tells it like it is. And then he goes, and I mean, you know, and people worked harder than you, right? And I was like, yeah, what's your point kid? And he goes, I just, I just want you to sit in this moment and recognize how special this is and how lucky you are. And yes, you wrote a good book and yes, you worked hard, but like lots of people wrote better books and worked harder. And I think just knowing that this is special and enjoying this moment is important, which I think is a pretty incredible amount of wisdom for a 14 year old kid. And I tell you that story because my book isn't the greatest book in the world and it probably did better than it should have done. And yet I was really smart about all the steps that I took to get it into Robin Roberts' hands and how I did it in a way that would actually resonate with her. So yeah, do I think um, some of the books that are out there that have been perennial on the top of the New York Times bestseller list are the best books in their subject area? Absolutely not. But do I think that they had really smart and strategic marketing plans? A hundred percent. So I think it's like, most people I know don't put their book out because it's not perfect like you and I don't have a problem with like perfect. Like we, we understand like when something's good enough to like go out into the world. Like, is it perfect? No, nothing's ever going to be perfect. Is it quality enough that it's worthy of your readers? That's the bar that I, that I strive for, right? Like I, it it is going to be as best as I can make it because my readers deserve no less than my best. But then everything beyond that, I think the other 99% of book success 
is marketing, is coming down to creating that following, like slowly, like I'm working on another book right now. And my goal is spend the year working on the book, but also spend the year putting out a steady drumbeat of of, of content so that people who follow me cannot wait to get their hands on the book because they want more of the thing that they've been seeing from me for the last year. And so I think it's, you know, it's, it is, it is, I never want to spend time building my network. I always want to spend time doing the content because that's what I love. That's what I care about. But I think thinking about how you can work on the ideas and also do what Michael Bungay Stanier does, which is just be such a smart marketing machine that you're doing, you know, like if, if you're putting out a post, who is that post aimed for? Is it a visibility post? Is it, you know, a lead gen post? Is it just, you know, like something that shows personality because people want to see enough of that, like being more intentional about the things you're putting out there and just more planful about it. For me, at least has created discipline around it. And I just, I don't know, I just wonder if that's a place to, to that, that would give you something that felt more intentional. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I I think that, you know, I had a lot of resistance to marketing for a number of years. So I think sure, you're, you're going to that is a real, there's, there's real insight there. Um, and it's something I've written about and something I've, I've talked about too. And I think that, you know, your story about Good Morning America is, it's such a good one because it's really that, you know, the, um, the, the being strategic and being intentional is important. And I think what I hear you saying is that, what I hear you saying is that, that I will benefit from just thinking, even if it's reframing a little bit, thinking a little bit more strategically about what's the content I'm putting out there and, 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 and what's the way that I want that content to have an impact. Well, and to what end? Right. So I am very clear that my next book is going to be evergreen content. Absolutely. And so I am not trying to rush it out in the middle of April when, you know, the world is starting to open back up and nobody's paying attention. I have a bunch of friends who put out books in September, October, November of this year. And those books that were not about crisis and were not about politics and were not about COVID, nobody read them and they were great books. So my thinking is, I have 10,000 people on my newsletter list right now. I want to grow that newsletter list to 50,000. If I can grow the newsletter list to 50,000 over the course of the next year while I write the next book, then I can pre-sell the book to 25% of that list and boom, New York Times bestseller, right? There's no reason why I should put the book out sooner because I, like you, have a book already. I can spend time talking about that topic. That's still very much, you know, when the world opens back up is the, when life goes back to normal is the, is the normal you're going back to really the life you want. That's what Limitless is all about. That's perfect for this time right now, just like your topics are perfect for this time right now. So there's no rush. So it's it's being intentional about what you're putting out, but also why you're putting it out. Like what is the goal? What would success look like? So for me, it looks like 50,000, you know, um, newsletter subscribers. It looks like a certain number of followers across social media. It looks like, you know, a certain level of, you know, people that I've interviewed for the book that I know are going to be able to, you know, share it with their audiences. Like, it's just a very strategic thing that, that, that I, that is the plan. And over the course of that, like everything I 
put out is going to have a lead gen. You come to my website and you download it and I get your email address or whatever, whatever the, the, the plan is. But yeah, like marketing feels super smarmy, right? But if you think about marketing in terms of if what you do is you put the tools in the hands of leaders so that they can help their organizations do transformative things and change the world and make a real impact, then you're not marketing that to as many leaders as you possibly can. I mean, what does Seth Godin say? He's like, if you don't put your ideas out there, you're stealing from other people. Like you have ideas that will help unlock impact. And if what you're saying is your calling is to create more impact in the world, then why are you hiding it? Like, why are you keeping it a secret? Yeah. Well, and for, for years, the answer was fear. You know, the, the kind of paradox of being afraid of uh, putting stuff. Yeah. Being afraid of putting stuff out there. That's um, imperfect or that people will judge me. I mean, that as a, as an, I think as a creative person in the world, there is this paradox of like, and I, I I've like been connecting with this much more recently, but there's this paradox of like, you both want to put stuff out there and have it noticed, but are also terrified to have it noticed in some way. I don't know if you experienced that. Um, it sounds like maybe you didn't, but I know that that's something that, that for me has been uh, something to navigate. No, I mean, absolutely. Like Isaac Asimov wrote 500 books in his life, like 500 books. Think about how prolific you have to be to write 500 books. And people would come up to him and they would give him criticism and say, well, I didn't like this part of this book. And he'd be like, what book? I've already written three since then. Like, it's just, it's like, that's the thing. Like, I, I, I you got to ship it, right? Like, if you don't put it out in the world, it doesn't count. And I think that, um, I think that there is, that, that when you put something out, there, well, number one, there are going to be people who love you and they're going to be people who hate you, even if what you put out is perfect, right? Because right. people's reaction has everything to do with them and their own feeling about themselves and the world and their own work and nothing to do with you. So um, first of all, that like having people's reaction be the judgment of whether something's good or not is something we got to get rid of just to, just to start with. Um, but also then it's a question of like, whose response do you listen to? Like, do you listen to, is every single Amazon review equal or are there some I'm like, I got an Amazon review from somebody who said that my book was too political and she gave me one star. Well, I mean, I worked in the Clinton White House. I told a story about working in the Clinton White House. My book wasn't political at all. It just, there was a story about my life in it and she decided it was too political and stopped reading at that point. What am I going to do with that? Like, there's nothing that I can do. It's like, it's like a restaurant getting a bad Yelp review because um, Uber Eats was too slow in bringing the order, right? It had, no, it had nothing to do with them. So do you judge everything the same? Number one. Number two, when you do put something out there that's imperfect, it's not like failure is not a finale, it's fulcrum. Like that's where you learn. So you're like, okay, I put something out and it totally flopped. Okay, I know that's not gonna work anymore or the way that I phrase that doesn't work. I just put out a newsletter and it had four click to tweet sentences in it. Two of them got tweeted 20 times in the first hour and two of them were not even clicked on, like nothing. And they weren't the two at the bottom of the newsletter. They were the two at the top of the newsletter. So clearly something in those sentences didn't work. That's not, oh my God, I put something out and I failed. That's, oh my God, I put something out and it failed, which means I get to learn from it and do better next time. And also number three, 
my favorite quote from Eleanor Roosevelt, and that's hard to say because it's like picking your favorite child, right? Like so many good quotes from Eleanor Roosevelt is, I would, you would worry much less about what people thought of you if you realized how seldom they did. Yes. Yeah. Like nobody cares. Nobody's paying attention. So like the only one who's stewing in their failure is you. And so just, you know, just keep moving, go on to the next thing, be Isaac Asimov. Yeah. I love it. Just keep, keep producing. Keep producing. Right. I, um, I'm, I, I put something on, on Instagram. Don't think about making art, just get it done. Let everyone else decide if it's good or bad, whether they love it or hate it while they're deciding make even more art. Ah, I love that. It's great. So yeah, that's my advice. Make more art. Yeah. And if what you have, you know, is good, you know, will change lives, you know, will create impact, you know, is transformative. Then I don't know that it's smart me to market it. I don't know that it's ambitious to try to put it out there and build business from it. Frankly, I think it's your responsibility. Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. And it's, and that, and that's, I've, I've come around to that. It's taken a while, but I've come around to that. And so I, I feel pretty comfortable with, with that as a, as a statement. Um, so how are you feeling? Um, you know, I feel like I have just had a big meal and I want to digest it. <laughs> so you have indigestion, is that what you're saying? <laughs> I have indigestion. No, I, I, I feel like there's, there's, there's a lot here to, there's a lot here to absorb and to think about. And I am, and I, I just know that, um, you know, I will be background processing this uh, over the next week or so. Um, but I think this has been really valuable and, and interesting and yeah. You know, I'll leave you with one last statement. So I am, I am gonna be 50 in February and I've, I've never had therapy before. Um, and, and then the pandemic hit and uh, I stopped sleeping. I mean, I basically didn't sleep from like March until September. I slept like two hours a night and was, you know, having a hard time forming sentences, which, you know, in my line of work is kind of a problem. So right. um, I, I posted something on Facebook about how like my brain is broken and I can't remember anything. And like, I literally like will read a recipe, like I need a half a teaspoon of garlic. And then I go to get the garlic and I forget how much I needed and like nothing was working. And a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist was like, um, you probably should talk to somebody. So she referred me to a psychiatrist and I went for the first time. And the first thing he did was congratulate me for making it 50 years without going to therapy. And I was like, really, should you be congratulating me on that? I think maybe that's a problem. And, uh, and, and I was telling him about the stuff that I do. And he was basically diagnosing me as like an overachiever, you know, workaholic type and told me we could work on that. And I told him, I thought it was a feature, not a bug, but he said one statement, which I, it has been six weeks and I'm still rotating around in my brain. And it is this one, you know, you don't have to give any of the trophies back. And I thought that was really interesting that I think for people like you and me who have done interesting stuff, you feel like the next thing has to be at least as good, if not better. And that gives you less space to explore and to learn and to fail and to fix and to change and to grow. And I think this idea that like, you don't have to give the trophies back. You still get to keep them, even as you're trying a new sport, even as you're trying a new thing. I just think that's, 
an interesting, as you're dealing with your indigestion, there's your little, like, you know, you get the little, the little bag of cookies from the fancy. Yeah. You get, there's your mint with the check. (laughs) You don't have to give the trophies back. So now you can take that and think about that too. I like that. Thank you. Um, I guess to switch hats back to my uh, other hat, I just, I, I, my host hat, I want to say thank you. Thank you for um, how generous you've been with your your time and um, with also, and I, I want to say this, like with sharing parts of yourself too, like with sharing the way that you've moved through some of this journey as well. Yeah, I, you know, I want to get t-shirts printed out that say, before you tell me what to do, tell me what you've done. And on the back, it's like, hashtag, show me your PL. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I think that there are so many people in the self-help and coaching space. And this is why, like, when I realized that my book wasn't a business, straight up business book, but a kind of a self-help book, although all business is kind of self-help also, I was sort of horrified. Um, because I think that there's so many shysters in the space that are like, let me show you how to create a business to coach coaches. And you're just like, oh my God. And they, they've totally. never done it themselves. So yeah, I, I, tr- I, I do tend to, in my coaching practice, share with my clients a little bit more than most who just ask questions because I, I don't know, I feel like I feel like I, you know, I see you because I, 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 I am you, you know, and I'm struggling with the same things also. And you know, my getting comfortable with the marketing side of it when I thought that like the substance should just speak for itself, it, it, it took a long time. And also, then I just kept getting comments and emails and Instagram messages and tweets from people who, you know, in like India who are reading my book and how it impacted them. And it's like, wow. Yeah, I wouldn't. They wouldn't have happened if I didn't actually tell people I had a book. Yeah, and that's a really, I think, a beautiful. Um, when I started the the podcast, I wrote an essay about the anxiety of producing mediocre work, and mm-hmm. um, I drew in part from. I don't know if you've ever seen these videos of Ira Glass talking about kind of taste. And, uh-huh. and creativity and how as a as a creative person, you, whatever it is you're creating, you're doing because you kind of love that medium. You know, if you're writing, it's because you like writing uh, you, and, and, and you like, you're a reader, you're a consumer of it also. And so there's this period, particularly at the beginning where you, your taste is very well developed because you've grown up as a fan of whatever whatever it is you're working on. But your your ability to produce work of that caliber is not yet so well developed, and so there's this kind yes. of gap. And and Ira Glass talks about that the only way to move through that gap is to be prolific, and I think that's what that's a, a big part of what you and I have been talking about. And I think what I'm seeing is too that there's kind of a a a, a if I can step back, there's a bigger reframing, which is like I can be prolific about my content, but I can also be prolific about like how I try to produce it and the the mediums I try to use and, you know, the things that the seeing specifically what's get what gets impact and and what 
and what doesn't and what lands with people and what doesn't. Yeah. I mean, if I've learned anything about marketing in the last five years, it's that I don't know anything about marketing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the things that I thought would absolutely just go viral are like thud. And the things that I like took five minutes and I wrote in the back of a cab, I just like everybody and their mother read it. And I, I'm, I, I, I have learned that I am not interested interested in sort of following the likes. So I'm not just going to keep, keep producing more of that thing, but there are lessons right. that I can take from that thing that I can apply to the thing that didn't work that I thought had more substance. Yeah. And honestly, as somebody who likes to like figure out puzzles, it sounds like figuring out the puzzle of marketing. Like I like public speaking because I'm interested in the craft of it. I'm interested in learning like how do I get better at telling the story in a way that impacts people to actually get off of their butts and make a change? And I'm interested in the game. Like, why does that guy get on put on stage for $50,000 and that guy's lucky if he can get $500 at the Elks Club? Like, yeah. I'm interested. I'm so interested in the game of the whole business. So for me, the the Dell, I, I satisfied my, you know, unease about marketing by seeing it as a game and being like, how do I figure out the game? Like, why is Rachel Hollis, Rachel Hollis, right? Like she doesn't have any specific background. Like she doesn't know anything different than anybody else. Like why, like Brene Brown, PhD, body of work. Mel Robbins had, you know, 20 years in, you know, broadcast journalism. Like she's like, they, they've got background. But then I look at people and I'm like, I don't get it. I don't get why this person and not that person. So I'm fascinated by studying the game of it. Totally. And it's a way to think about it that that in particular is something I've been coming around to over the last couple of months, which feels really good. Realizing that the business, in fact, is marketing, full stop. And, and then I might get to do some interesting work as a result of that. But, but there's a way in which, you know, that's table stakes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, if nobody invites you to the dance, you don't get to dance. You don't get to dance, exactly, exactly. So it doesn't matter how good your moves are, you don't get to They're dance. Good, my moves are good, <laughs> man. My moves are terrible. In fact, <laughs> when I when I was on Good Morning America, I had to do this thing where I had to like take this like ballot box and like push it off to the side. But Amy Roback walked to the wrong part of the stage, and I had to like move it around her and then shove it. And I was wearing stiletto heels. And afterwards, I got off, and the text from my husband was, "I can't believe you didn't fall," <laughs> <laughs> because That's I am great. known to be a huge klutz. So yeah, I was pretty certain I was going to fall flat on my face on live national TV. But, you know, again, I got invited to the dance. You got to get invited to the dance. Yeah. And re regardless it. of what your business is, like for anybody who's still listening at this point, like regardless of what your business is, what's the dance, right? For me, the dance is getting the book in enough hands. Like if, if I write the best book in the world, but I don't get my newsletter list in the next year up to 50,000 readers, then I'm not invited to the dance. It doesn't matter how good the book is. The moves are great, but I'm not invited. So like, what's the dance? And I think if you figure that out, I think then that dictates what you do. And then it, it for me, it doesn't feel like marketing because I'm not about how many books am I gonna sell? I'm about how many books am I going to sell so that I get a New York Times bestseller so that other people wanna buy it. And then that then is you know the momentum so that so many more people read it that I may change in that many more people's lives. Yeah.
That's a really, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Well, Laura, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Thanks for being open and letting me just run rampant around your brain for the last hour. It's been fun. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners, subscribe to the show, and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word, make the leap. The Breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Rain Avant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well until our next breakdown.